0: Foster, Foster Care, Care Nation, Nation. Listen, up. Listen up this is
1: Foster Care and On Parad Journey
0: <Commonwealth Headzte> Strength for the powerless, courage for the fearful, hope and healing for wounded hearts. Welcome back to Foster Care and Parallel Journey with Jason and Amanda. Today's guest we have is Ryan Vernetson. Did I get it right? You did. Awesome. <laughs> it was much easier than one of the last ones I had that I, that one I didn't even try. I was afraid.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well done.
0: Yes. I believe her name was.
1: Oh, well, I'm not saying it again.
0: <laughs> Nipponika. Nipponika. Something like that, yes. I felt bad because I just couldn't quite get it right. But your name is not that challenging for me, so <laughs> we're good to go. How are you doing today, Ryan?
2: I am well. How are you guys?
0: Oh, man, we're just busy living our world full of chaos and trying to make some sense out of it all and and move forward. But we wanted to talk to you today because I know you work with Safi, right?
2: I do.
0: All right. That is the Special Alternatives Oh, come on, my brains. I just read it. Special alternatives for foster youths.
2: Close. Specialized alternatives for families and youth.
0: I was so close.
2: (laughs) You were. And you chose words that are very applicable. So that's (laughs) word.
0: We were close. We were close. I know. And you guys are out there in Ohio. Is that correct?
2: We actually have services in seven states. So we're headquartered in Ohio. I'm physically in Colorado. Um, which is another one of our states. And then we have five others.
0: What other five states do you serve?
2: We have Alabama, Indiana, Kentucky, South Carolina, Nevada, um, Ohio, and have I said six or seven? I didn't count them. (laughs) Can we redo that part? (laughs) Go for it. Alabama, Colorado, Indiana, Kentucky, Nevada, South Carolina, and that's it.
1: Do you guys plan on expanding more?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that the company is always open to expansion as, um, as the need presents itself and as it makes sense. I think what's really important to us is that growth comes from a place of quality and that we're not growing just for the sake of growing, but we're growing because there is an unmet need and we feel that we can meet that need.
0: That's great. Yeah. Actually, I have a friend of mine who um who has mentioned, I think, working with you guys. He has an organization called Life That Counts. Okay. And I is remember that Um, no, actually, he's in Alabama.
2: Oh, Alabama.
0: Yep. Yep. And uh, and I know I've talked with him about you guys because he he works with kids as as part of what he does. Their their nonprofit works with kids in high school age um groups and talks about a lot of the stuff that teens need to hear. So I, I've no I've heard about Safi from him. Mm-hmm. And ask him who's that? And he's like, Oh, it's a group we work with. And well, now here we are, and <laughs> it comes full circle. So look, specialized alternatives for families and youth. So what kind of alternatives are we talking about? I mean, what what what's the work that you guys do?
2: That's a great question. Um, so our our largest line of service is foster care, and it's specifically what we call treatment or therapeutic foster care. Um, it's meant for children who um Are coming out of a residential or a hospital-like setting into a family setting, or um, they have needs that are a little bit more extensive than a traditional foster care home. Um, And so for a youth who's experiencing foster care and needs that therapeutic level, they're able to go to a home that's um, more specially trained, that has fewer youth in the home, Um, And sometimes there's instances of, you know, they have different medical needs or different developmental needs. It's a more appropriate match to ensure that they're able to get the whole person care that they need. Um, We also have adoption services in some of our states um, to facilitate adoption as well as um, after a child has been adopted, supporting that family. Uh, We have behavioral health services. So that would be more of your traditional outpatient mental health. Um, going to therapy. Um, We have family preservation services, which is really one of our our biggest focus areas as an agency is supporting families before a child has to be removed from a home. So trying to work upstream. Um, But as part of family preservation services, we also have reunification. So as a youth enters the foster care system, um, partnering with that, family, whether it's biological family, kin family, non-traditional kin, to try and safely reunify them. We know that children often thrive in a a true family setting. Um, And our final line of service is called older youth services. So that's for youth who have aged out of the foster care system and need the support that we all needed entering young adulthood, um, doing those things like applying for college or trade school um filling out job applications learning those basic life skills Um, so that's our final line of service
0: and that's a highly needed service from what i understand the um the numbers are just not just not terribly encouraging for most kids who who age out of the system
2: they're not and i think um I think that tells us two things. The first thing it tells us is that we really need to work upstream, right? If we're just always reactive, um, waiting for youth to enter the foster care system and then hoping we can get them into a family setting um, to discharge from foster care, I think we'll keep running into the same problem, right? So the more upfront work we can get uh, to families and the more community support we can offer families so that removal never has to happen, the better. But the second thing, and I think we can normalize this for all young adults, is that um, we needed guidance, you know, no matter our scenario, we all needed guidance at that critical young adult life phase. Like when I was 18 or 19, I still needed to call a parent to get advice on how do I fill out the FAFSA or my taxes or um, my employer said this, what do I say in response? our youth are no different, but we off, we do know that because they may not have that safe mom or dad um, to call, we have to be offering really supportive, um, preventative, and responsive services to them so that they, they can achieve favorable outcomes as young adults.
0: Yes, because as parents of teens, I can tell you most of the information that teens tend to believe is um, questionable. <laughs>
1: on TikTok. yes oh so much that's just that's absolutely hilarious me and my daughter were just having this conversation last night she's Mm -hmm. like but it was on a tiktok video and i'm like yeah you can make anything and put it on the internet just because you can find it doesn't mean that it's true but in their eyes you know Mm -hmm. whatever platform is popular at the moment that's king
0: or even sometimes a lot of times what their friends say Mm-hmm. you know oh well my friend told me that this is the way you know and even want to argue and I'm like um one of us has a couple more decades worth of experience here
2: <laughs> completely completely I think we all I mean we all need guidance throughout our life right but especially that young adult um, time is is a, it's a really critical and formidable time um, that the more positive support we can wrap kids in as opposed to you know what somebody is putting on tiktok or instagram the better
0: yes because i don't know about you i'm not a big tiktok guy i do not have the app on my phone I don't either. for several reasons but we won't dive off into all that but i can say that i've seen a few of those uh videos that show up on the uh show up on facebook that run through tiktok stuff and i go wow this is what people do they sit and stare at this and this is where they're building their worldview. This is frightening. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. We'd like to take a quick minute to step out of the podcast here and ask you guys for a little bit of support. If you could share an episode with people, friends, in a group with family, Anywhere where there's somebody who would like to hear this. Also, if you'd like to join us and support our mission, a couple dollars a month would be really helpful. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. Now back to the show.
2: Absolutely. And it's great that we know that, right? We know that what is influencing the perception of this generation so that we can both I think that some people are being very creative about utilizing TikTok. I know there's a lot of mental health professionals, for example, that are starting to put kind of educational materials on TikTok because it's reaching that younger audience. Um, But it also allows us as parents to be really um, aware of what our kids might be consuming so that we can help monitor and keep them safe.
0: Maybe I need to start my own TikTok account and just call it Don't Be a Dummy. (laughs) (laughs)
2: i think you get followers (laughs) it's possible
0: it's possible for sure so you mentioned um uh, family preservation and and that Mm -hmm. really sounds like that is that upstream thing that a lot of these Mm -hmm. kids need you know down to to some of the situations we've seen where we've mentioned um before about having having kids just show up and hang out you know who are you know relatives or, or, or friends or whatever and and they're having something going on at home Mm-hmm. And a lot of these homes do not have the services coming in. And I know even for, for like our area, we have what, two, three workers left in the county?
1: It's very limited right now.
0: And granted, we're a rural county, but but we're not small enough to that two or three workers can, can take care of the caseload for sure. And so mm-hmm. I know a lot of these families are going without services. And you have a lot of these kids who are falling through the cracks, especially in the middle of their teen years with all the stuff going on. I mean, our kids are going through the COVID thing, the way it's messing with schools, you know, it depends on what state and what area you live in. Our schools have been back in-person in school since the beginning of this school year. But it's, it's been an incredible challenge for them. Mm-hmm. You throw that on top of a family that's in crisis. Yeah. And, man, we have some problems. So how, how do you guys help those people or, the, you know, the kids who come out of those, those families that just are in crisis?
2: yeah that's a that's a good question. Um and I think to back up to something you said earlier is, you know sometimes we miss families until we don't we don't see families until they're in crisis. And I don't think any system is designed with that in mind. You know, I don't think a system is like, you know, we only want to help people when they're in crisis. but there's a lot of factors that contribute to families staying off the radar until they do reach that point where maybe there has been an instance of abuse or Neglect is so severe that they come to the attention of child welfare. Um, So, you know, the first thing that comes to mind for me is around like disproportionality um, as well as socioeconomic status. So, we know that children of color are disproportionately represented in child welfare populations. So, that's the first thing I think about is, you know, how do we get meaningful, um, culturally responsive services to those communities where we're seeing more referrals come from? Um, the second is around you know neglect and poverty and socioeconomic status. So a lot of the times we see children who are removed because a family is really, really poor. Um, but it's they're not, you know, actively trying to hurt their child. So the more that we can pour resource and support into those families um, through con- connecting them to community services or making sure that they're on, they're getting TANF if it's, if it's appropriate or WIC or something like that. Um, I think we can prevent kids from or families from getting to that crisis state where a larger system has to get involved. Um, and finally, you talked about rural communities. I mean, we know that as a fact Rural community communities are often underserved with prevention-based services. Um, and I think one of the blessings of COVID is a lot of providers had to switch to a telehealth model. And so my hope coming out of COVID is that um, for communities which are hard to access, and while I think we can all agree that in in-person services are ideal, if there's times when we can't get to a family because of geography, could we leverage telehealth? as a way to provide services, um, to be more proactive, to be more supportive. Um, but back to your question about how do we serve a child that's, you know, coming out of a family in a state of crisis, I think it really depends on the situation and on the child. Um, you know, I I have I have not had the, the personal experience of being removed from my home. Um, I can only imagine what that's like. And I've, of course, heard um, a lot of stories in the last decade about what that's like. But I think one of the one of the most supportive things that we can do, if it's safe and allowed, is allow that child to remain connected to their family while their family is getting back on their feet or doing what they need to do to be um, safe and stable, right? So imagine you know getting removed from your home and then being told like, nope, you can never talk to your mom and dad. or you can't talk to your mom and dad until we say so. That would be so dis- confusing and disorienting and destabilizing that that's one of the first things we really try to assess um, with the county partner or the child's caseworker or, or guardian ad them is what contact can they have? And then how can we facilitate that as a means to help that child feel a sense of safety and predictability in their new home?
0: That's a difficult part, you know, because as foster parents, you know, our primary goal is reunification. Mm-hmm. And so we have to keep some of that, some of that there. We we've run across a few situations where that was definitely not, not mm-hmm. appropriate or helpful. Right. I mean, those exist.
2: Yes, absolutely.
0: You know, we, we had one particular one I'm thinking of. Um, He's actually tattooed on me over here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and little guy was, he was the, the target of abuse mm-hmm. and some pretty, well, what was billed to us by the the local County was that it was the worst case of abuse they'd seen in a decade. And um, it, it was pretty, pretty bad, you know, and they originally were setting up these weekly visits for this kid and he's coming out of these visits. How was, was a, uh,
1: at that point, almost three.
0: Yeah. And we just, we use nicknames for kids names. So yes, for protection. <laughs> yeah.
1: But these visits were so traumatizing and yeah. they were continuing to happen. And, and we had to abide by, you know, the visitation schedules and everything, mm-hmm. but it was happening because, somebody in another department they weren't following through with the paperwork and the charges so that we could get these visitations stopped because they were so well and so horrible and, uh, and unhealthy and
0: and not safe you're trying to be kind here i'm i'm not even going to be kind there was a detective who wasn't doing his job i see and and when i you know and it took us calling and i i asked so. the dude i'm like hey what, what are we doing here? Like, what's going on? And he says, "Oh well, well, I'm, I'm waiting for people to call me. I'm like, you're the detective. Your job is to go find them. At which point I got off the phone with him and I got a hold of the, the sheriff and said, hey.
1: And also, you also went down to the station. I mean, it, oh, yeah. we,
0: we made some noise. We rattled a few chains and the guy got on the ball and got that stopped. And I think that's a most appropriate thing in those situations. Obviously, this kid had some some tremendous physical sexual abuse, right? Mm-hmm. But there's also a lot of situations where where somebody's coming out of a home and it's not because of that.
1: Exactly. No, too often we see children that are just, they're in the system because of poverty. Mm-hmm. It's so extremely disheartening. You know, our children shouldn't be taken away for that reason. We should be able to support each other as a community and a village. You know, kids should not be punished because parents are poor.
0: But the struggle we see oftentimes is that along with poverty, not always, but commonly there's some addiction there Mm. and that that's a struggle for, to, to be able to keep connections with people who are in active addiction, you know? So, so how have you, how have you been able to, to help people deal with some of those struggles? Because that's real, that's real life. That's what we see on a regular basis. Almost, almost every case we have had come through our house has been had addiction either as a primary or sec- secondary issue?
2: Oh, that's such a good question. And I think really eloquently stated as a problem. Um, you know, the first thing that comes to mind for me is really remembering that um, addiction is a disease, right? It's not a choice. Um, i Fundamentally, and this, of course, this is my perspective. uh, I fundamentally don't believe people are generally saying, yes, I'd rather be addicted to heroin than be with my child. Um, But um, the grasps of addiction are are very real and incredibly difficult to overcome. So I think as helping people or helping professionals, our first order of business is getting that individual, um, the level of care that they need, whether that's an inpatient stay an intensive outpatient program, a um, connection with a 12-step program or recovery program that works for their um, spiritual or or personal or cultural beliefs, um, as well as providing education to the system that, you know, a parent who is experiencing or struggling with addiction, they're not going to, it's not something that they can snap out of overnight. That's going to be a process. That's going to be part of their treatment. Um, And the other thing we often see concurrent with addiction, not always, uh, but concurrent with addiction is a mental health or a behavioral health need um, and sometimes significant untreated trauma. And so really looking, to me, it's important that we really look at that parent as a whole person, not just as an addict or an alcoholic, but this is a human being who's really suffering and that's manifesting in addiction. So let's get them support for that addiction, that substance abuse. Let's see if there's any underlying behavioral or physical health care conditions that need to be treated. And then if there's trauma, let's get them the meaningful to support to start um, processing and resolving that trauma. Because if we can do all of those things and that parent is committed to their recovery, they can and should you know, reunify with their child because their child will thrive. Their child probably wants to be with them. Of course, there's always those cases, like you guys were just talking about, where it is not safe for kids to have contact with or go back to their parents. But if it's just addiction, which can be treated, and otherwise, there's a lot of safety and protective factors, you know, let's get that person the help they need and treat them with the dignity and respect that they deserve.
0: You know, you talk about addiction, and I have a little bit of my own experience there. Um mm-hmm. Several years back, we're coming up on sixth anniversary this year. Yes. Yes. The sixth anniversary of losing our daughter. Um, she mm-hmm. had a nasty disease and I, I'm just going to say that it felt like the right thing to dive into the bottom of a bottle and yeah. I swam some laps down there and sure. I, I've looked, the, the, there's not a genie in the bottom. I've looked in every bottle. She's not there. And I did my, I, I did my time doing that, just trying to figure that out and, and, it took a while for me to be able to to come out of that. And for me, honestly, I think part of it was just to find a community of men who, Mm -hmm. who could come around me and support me as I was trying to find my way out of it. And for me, it was, it was a dad's group I'd found online. It's one that I talk about a lot on here. Um, on this podcast, I've mentioned it multiple times, but I think he's he's renamed it now to um, the Dad Edge Alliance. And it's, it's a group of men who are incredibly vulnerable and talk about these things. And that's so hard to find in the world today. You know, but people need their own level of, of assistance as they come out of that. And I think that's one of the things that I don't see a lot of either things that exist. You know, yes, there's Narcotics Anonymous or, or um, AA, things like that. And there's some people who find success in that, but there's a lot of people. I went to the AA meetings. I tried that when I was trying to quit, and it was not my thing. I'm not mad mm-hmm. at those guys. I'm not mad at what they've done. They've helped a lot of people over the years, and I mm-hmm. give them mad props for it. But it wasn't for me. Um, do you know of anything that that can kind of substitute that for the parents who are in there in the middle of their addiction who need that help, that community around them, especially when you're in a in a poor area, not a lot of money, not a lot of family, not a lot of support.
2: Oh, man, that's a million-dollar question. Um, and thanks. I mean, thank you for sharing that experience, and congratulations on your recovery. I think that's remarkable. Re- uh, recovery is also part of my story, so I share that with you. Um, I think it depends on the community. And um, I would go back to as, as COVID happened, we saw all kinds of supports, which used to be very um, – you know geographically limited become accessible to people all across the world. And so, you know nothing comes to mind for me right now Jason outside of those kind of 12 step um, there's some other recovery based models. Um, but I think that they are out there. I think they exist. There is a um, there is a website. I think it's called mantherapy.com. Um I'm just going to google it right now really quick. Yeah, it's called mantherapy.com. Um and that's maybe one of the places I might turn to to see specifically about you know dads and men getting that mental health support. Culturally, I think it has been really stigmatized for a very long time um, for, for men, especially for fathers to say, this is really hard and I just wanna break down and I can't do it. Um, I think the more that we can normalize and, and celebrate um, men going and getting their own behavioral health support and treatment and community um, the stronger our families will become.
0: I believe the line was attributed to Jim Rohn um, saying that you are the average of the five people you spend the most time around. Mm. And I, I mean, I can't, I can't agree with that more because when I first started hanging around with a bunch of guys, even online who had been through their struggles and were open to talk about them, that was one of the big changes for me was to be able to look at some of these guys who were doing amazing things Mm -hmm. The guy who started this group, he started it because uh, it was originally called the Good Dad Project, and it started because one night he had this horrible night at home with his kids, and I I forget the the actual story, but he ended up in a moment where he felt horrible about the interaction that he had just had with his kids. You Mm -hmm. know, at some point, I believe he even put a foot through a door or something. Maybe it was a fist. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but it was was some real bad moments that he went, holy crap, I've got to do something. And there's not a lot of guys out there who are having that conversation. And in the foster care system, one of the things that we see is it's almost an entirely female dominated experience. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is that when we go to, you know, foster support groups that we used to attend those quite a bit long before COVID and all that, but I was one of maybe two dads who would show up. Yeah. The dad, the foster dads weren't showing up there. When you go to court, so often when the biological parents show up, it's mom almost all the time and almost right. never dad. And it's, it's, it's just a, a situation that's almost entirely dominated by, by females and not that group where we come stand, you know, two people who stand shoulder to shoulder to support each other and raise kids.
1: Yeah. Cause that's the thing I, I couldn't do without you standing beside me,
2: mm-hmm. you know,
1: but that's the thing. Our children need fathers. And our fathers need to have safe places to go and get supports and venting and all the things that us mothers do, you know, sitting around chit chatting, you know, they need an escape too. And I think too often it's, it's overlooked. And a lot of times, you know, there is a stigma about it. You know, you're the man of the house, you know, and you're strong and well, yeah, but strong people get tired too.
2: Of course they do. Of course they do. Um, I think that that's a really good observation. Um, And we saw that, we we see that similarly at SAFI. We um, do, we recently did um, some foster parent satisfaction surveys and we noticed some slightly lower engagement um, and overall satisfaction from our foster fathers when we compared it to foster mothers. And so we're actually in one of our states piloting right now um, a foster father support group, which is you know, run by men, led by men. So it's not a a, a, female, a well-intentioned female trying to facilitate that discussion, but we're using dads who are doing this day in and day out to connect on on those topics that matter. Because you're right they 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 don't really, they not only need the support, but they deserve the support because this is a hard hard journey. Um, and dads play a really important role in that. And we, we know that. Um, you know, there's even like some federal initiatives on engaging fathers more meaningfully. Um, because a lot of times our kids crave it, right? And so let's get them, um, let's get our dads the support that allows them to sustain and be the the dads that they want to be.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's a really important part of this whole piece because you know, moms can can fill the roles mm-hmm. up to a point. But she's never going to be as, as good at being a dad as I can. Sure. And mind you, Absolutely. I'm never going to be as good of a mother as she is, I promise.
2: <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And for those houses, you know, those homes where there isn't a dad and there won't be a dad. I think that there's creative ways that we can engage um, that male figure in the community. But like you said, Jason, it goes back to um, having a community who, who sees, poverty and um child welfare and family systems as a community issue and not just something that you know houses need to address individually um i really strongly believe it does take a village to raise a child and so the more we invest in our communities the healthier we'll we'll be
0: i don't know if you're familiar with meg meeker she's the author of strong fathers strong daughters Mm. it's been around for a good long while and i actually heard her speak um i had the opportunity to be in a uh be in a um, uh, zoom meeting with her at one point. And, and one of the things that she said is as she was talking about the importance of fathers in, in daughters lives was how, how it was just a travesty the way that, that our, our culture has set this up and how many dads weren't involved. And as we talked about, you know, if you go, especially into the inner cities, it's, it's something I see on a regular basis because I'm in the city all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in the parts of St. Louis where a lot of those problems exist. And one of the things she said is the problems could be solved really easily. If you put one strong black man on the co- every corner mm-hmm. in those in those urban areas who could stand up and be that role model, mm-hmm. you would see a lot of these problems disappear. And it's just a lack of of that male role model standing up and doing what needs to be done today. And that's, that's one of the struggles that we see a lot in these kids' lives because young men who end up within a lot of these places, especially in the urban settings, right? The, the kids who end up running to gangs are looking for that family model, that relational model that we just don't have in our, you know, that, that's not coming out in our, in our culture. You look at the music and the movies and 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 all of that, and it's just not part of what we see there these young Um, men are turned into kids with problems.
2: Absolutely. Um, And, you know, that makes me think of something that that I'm personally really passionate about, which is um, the concept of of multi-generational trauma and poverty. Um, And that a lot of times, you know, in my work, I would see um, dads or moms or moms and moms, whatever the combo is, um, you know, involved in the child welfare system and doing their best to raise their kids. And realizing that, you know, they're doing their best because they were never shown how, right? Or they were shown in a really unsafe and dysfunctional and hurtful way. And so they're trying so hard to break those patterns that you know, we get hardwired in a certain way. And unless we're really focused on rewiring that brain, we do what we, we, we exhibit the behaviors that are are familiar and that we were taught as well. So it is for dads, it's this cycle where, you know, what dad one bails and then, um, and then his son tries to raise a son and it just keeps repeating itself and recycling. And and I think the good news in it is that it can be disrupted, right? It just takes one person or one generation to disrupt that cycle. Um, And and by doing meaningful things like you're talking about with your dad's group, um, we can start disrupting those cycles of violence and poverty and trauma for generations to come.
0: Hey there, Foster Care Nation. If you'd like to find yourself in a group with like-minded people, head over to Facebook and you can find us at facebook.com groups slash UJ. We've got a group over there where we talk about foster care, we talk about adoption, and we talk about all the things related. If your podcast player allows it, you can also reach down and hit that subscribe button so you get notified every week when we put up uploads. Every Tuesday, a new episode comes out. We'd love to see you next week. Now back to the show. Absolutely. And my family's story is, is exactly a story of that. You know, Mm -hmm. my, my dad was, and don't get me wrong here. He wasn't the problem child here. My dad was a good dad. We had a close relationship. He, he was involved in my life. He was, he was a great role model for me, but his dad passed away when he was, I think, I think he was seven when his dad died. And then there was a series of men who came to his house who were not good humans to put Mm -hmm. it kindly. One of them put a fork in his head. Mm. And yeah, literally put a fork in his head. And mm. so to, to look at that and realize how far he came with that as an adult now, you know, I, I, part of, you know, having lost him, that part of that grief is that I never really got to talk to him deeply about that and understanding where he came from. Like he came out to be a pretty dang good guy from coming from a hard place like that. And, you know, here we are trying to, trying to reach out and help other kids. And I look at that and go, okay, what you just said is a hundred percent true. You can be completely turned around in a generation or two, Mm -hmm. but it takes people coming out and helping those kids as they become adults to become good adults and choose that, that change. So what is it that you see that helps these kids the most to see that, man, you're coming out of something hard. And so instead of, instead of just propagating this, this trauma along, because I'm hundred percent with you, that family trauma, that historical trauma What makes them want to choose to be different, to be better, to to go make the world amazing?
2: Uh, What a good question. Um, I think the first thing that we can do is as much as we focus on, and I think the way our systems are set up, we oftentimes focus on what's wrong, right? So the behavior, the... um, The externalization of an experience, we focus on what's wrong. So I think as much as we focus on what's wrong, we need to spend two times as much, two times um, focusing on what's right. Um, Because our, our, our kids, our families, Um, As as us as individuals, right, we come with all kinds of things that we need to work on. But there's a lot of amazing things about the kids that we serve. They're often so resilient and they're good at reading people and they're resourceful and they use humor and um, they can be athletic. They can be tremendous readers or artists. And so, you know, that's the first thing I think about, because sometimes um, kids really need to know that someone believes in them. That, yeah, you're, you might do some hard work to heal from this trauma. And, and there's going to be times that that work feels scary and it feels impossible. But as the supportive adult in your life, or hopefully it's a group of adults, um, we believe in all of the things that make you wonderful. And together, in partnership with you, we're going to help you heal from the bad stuff. Um, I don't think we are meant to heal in silos or heal in vacuums, when I think the more we can come alongside kids and say, we see your experiences, we see your pain, and we're here to shine the flashlight when it feels really dark and you can't go forward alone. I mean, I think that that's one of the things that we can do. Um, I think the, another thing for children, especially in foster care, experiencing foster care, um, you know, again, I I haven't had that experience, but I can imagine at the opposite, you feel so different from your peers, right? Um, And so the more we can connect kids to what we might consider kind of normal child activities, so making sure that they're in a sport whenever it's possible, or an or an art-based activity, or music, something that they're really passionate about, um, and connecting them to other people, um, whether that's adults or kids in the community. Um, again, I think we're just starting to like plant seeds of hope um, that you know your life can be good, your life is good. We're gonna we're gonna be with you side by side. Um, And I think without those things, um, it would be really difficult to have the motivation to make different choices, especially when, um, especially on those really difficult days when all your body and brain want to do is default to what's normal and what's normal might not be a very safe or healthy behavior.
1: Well, and statistics are stacked against them too. Mm -hmm. They hear all these things of aging out of the system. You're going to be a drug addict. You know, you're going to be a criminal you know, all these things are stacked against our kids and they're not getting enough of the uplifting things that you're talking about, those supports that they so need. So it's really awesome that you guys are offering that. Um, Do you guys do like um, mentoring programs where you look for volunteers to come in and help with kids or?
2: That's such a good question. Um, And it's it's really um, kind of state, but also city-based since, you know, since we are in the seven states and we have multiple um, locations within those states, so it's really dependent on what's available in that community. One of the programs that we have available um, for any of our youth to participate in is called Why Thrive, and it's really focused on um, supporting kids um, in connecting with inspirational folks um, who may have experienced foster care and are now adults. Um, or who have success in a, in a particular area and catering that message to our youth who are experiencing foster care so that they can know that there are adults who have not only survived, but thrived after foster care. Um, and that can be their reality as well. So, you know, we really try and make sure that kids are connected to mentoring or the Boys and Girls Club or a, an art-based activity. And then, you know, the other thing that's really important to me as as a leader, but also as a clinician, is that we are educating that child. I kind of call it like their ecology. So all of the people that are in their lives about the impact of trauma. Um, and that trauma can change us on a biological level, right? It impacts the way we see and experience the world. And so when we take a youth into our home or into our, our classroom or into our therapy office, and we see a, a behavior that is not desirable, we first need to remember that that behavior is a communication, right? We we all communicate with behavior. Um, and when we, oftentimes if a, if a child or an adult doesn't have a different way to communicate it, they'll communicate it in a behavior that gets your attention, whether you like it or not. Um, but that, you know, we have to understand that that in order to help someone heal or to exhibit a different behavior, we have to begin soothing that brain and that body, um, seeing those experiences as really impactful, understanding how that person um, experiences the world, and then giving them new tools and strategies to get through the day-to-day and then thrive. When we have someone join our home or our office or our school and just tell them about all the things that they can't do, but not focus on um, you know, replacing behaviors that have helped them survive, um, we, we often fail. And that feels like a failure for the professional or the adult, but it feels like a failure for the kid as well. So the education of trauma is something I'm very passionate about, and I think it's one of the ways we can help anyone involved in the child welfare system.
0: Well, you mentioned that you're a clinician. So mm-hmm. what, what is your background on that side?
2: Yeah, um, so my master's degree is in clinical mental health counseling, and I'm a licensed professional counselor in Colorado. Um, and have had the pleasure of serving all kinds of kids and adolescents and adults. Um, one of my specialties is animal-assisted therapy. So um, the utilization of a professional therapy dog in the therapy setting, which I have found is really, really good for both kids and adults who have experienced trauma especially um, if that trauma is interpersonal in nature. So it, you know, they were hurt by someone who is supposed to be safe or keep them safe. Um, therapy can feel really scary and really overwhelming and really intimidating. And so, you know, utilizing the professional therapy dog first as a way to build relationship with that child or that adult. Um, but we also have some science to suggest, you know, canines or, or other animals can really help soothe our brain and our body. Um, and then finally, you know, for someone who's never felt good at anything in their life, getting teaching the dog a trick or working a therapeutic activity with the dog present can make them feel successful. And then we can start building on that success to begin the therapy
0: process. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Let me ask you this because we we've run across this as well. You know, we've had lots of kids with lots of trauma, right. As you might expect Mm -hmm. any foster parent has, Mm -hmm. and then you're working with, you know, trying to work with the biological family and, Oftentimes people just, and I think it might have something to do with the stigma of mental health and all that good stuff, but they just don't want to believe mm. that, that therapy can help them any kind of therapy that they just cannot, that's not really what's wrong there. You know, that's, that's not it at all. They just need, you know, you need to love them better or some, whatever the, the, the choice is. Right. And, and you mm-hmm. know, and she smiled because I, I'm with you. I, like, I've heard that, that statement before. Yeah. You're doing it wrong. You're not, you're not treating them. You're not loving them the right way, and and all that good stuff. But the truth is, is a lot of people are afraid of of therapy. They're afraid of those things, and I feel like it's really needed to help people get through their traumas because trauma's a big deal for a reason.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I smile because I get that. You know, um, there's been times in my life where I've said. I don't want to go to therapy for this, you know, because I think fundamentally it can make you feel like there's something wrong with you and nobody wants to feel like there's, I'm, I'm defective or there's something wrong. Um, and I think that a lot of times there's also influences from our culture that may make therapy more or less accessible, but also our family of origin. You know, if, if you grew up in a family where there's a lot of negative messaging around therapy, or if you grew up in a family where there's been generations of child welfare involvement. And so the narrative is, if you go to therapy, that therapist is going to try and take your kid away. Of course, you wouldn't go to therapy, right? You're trying to survive. So I think there's often a lot to unpack for our people who are saying, no, 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 we'll never go, can't ever go. Um, and that's why I also like you know, some of those um, less traditional mechanisms or modalities of therapy to get people engaged and, and really understand that it isn't as scary or threatening as it may feel.
0: Yeah, because I I, I grew up in that house. Mm-hmm. My, my mom needed some help and she was seeing a therapist and my dad was always like, I don't know why you got to go to somebody else to tell them your problems. You know, he, he was not a fan of therapy. He didn't understand it at all. And and I grew up with that mindset and Amanda will attest to that. I did not always grow up with a mindset that looked towards that. And now like we've got Dr. Tom on our side.
1: But if if you would have told me that in the beginning of our relationship and marriage, that he would willingly go and speak to someone, I would have said, Mm -hmm. absolutely not. Because it was so, no, you don't do that. And that's not acceptable. And. You know, and and there were times that I was struggling there. I, I've struggled with depression all of my life. And mm-hmm. when you're significant, others telling you, oh no, this is bad, and why would you do that? And well, why would I do that? <laughs> well, okay, I'm not. I, I'm just gonna I'm gonna suffer in silence. And and too often people do suffer and sit in silence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They do
0: it. Well, it was it wasn't until until I, I started to realize that. That I was outside of my element. I think God finally said, hey, by the way, dude, um, you can't handle all this on your own. And I'm going to prove it to you. Mm-hmm. And it was proven to me that I couldn't. And I ended up being the one who went out and searched out Dr. Tom. He was recommended to me yeah. by a friend of mine. And and I will just go ahead and say the man is a friggin' genius. And he <laughs> has helped us on so many levels in so many different ways and absolutely changed our life and our legacy that will leave behind us just because of the help he's been able to give us. And I couldn't have, I couldn't have seen that 15 years ago.
1: No. Yeah, oh man. Sure. If we would have had him 15 years ago, <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, absolutely. absolutely. And I'm glad you've had that experience. And, you know, initially 15 years ago, you weren't opposed to going to therapy because you are a bad person or because you didn't want to make your family better opposed to going to therapy because your family of origin story was we don't do this, it's not okay or it's not safe or you can't trust it right And so I really like to utilize that same exact perspective when we're working with any anyone, whether it's an, a teenager or an adult or a biological family who's saying no, no, no is well, there's something underneath that, right There's something underneath the no and let's let's massage it and honor it um, and work with it so that, Someone can have a transformational experience like you're describing, Jason, because we all deserve that transformational experience.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of that, a, fr- a friend of mine calls it, it comes out of our BS. That's our belief systems. Mm-hmm. And so many of, <laughs> of our choices in life are based on those those BS belief systems that that we grew up with, that we brought, like you mentioned, out of our families of origin. Mm-hmm. And for these, especially for the kids who come to us who are coming out of, of a family that may have generational trauma, that have struggles that we don't even know or understand. Is it any wonder that we fight so hard trying to get them the help that they need?
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think sometimes, um, you know, finding a therapist is, is like finding a good match. Like sometimes to me, it feels like dating, right? Um, where you go to one therapist and you're like, ooh, that is not the match for me. It doesn't mean they're a bad therapist. It may just mean there's not a connection because think about what we do in therapy. A lot of times it is it is deep and intimate and raw. Um, but so often what happens is someone goes to their first therapy appointment with someone who's not a right match, And then they generalize that experience to all therapy, right? It will always feel this bad. And really, I think as community members, as loving, helping people, we can encourage them, like, let's go try another person. Let's try this. So Anytime it's accessible, and this is of course hard in smaller communities, I really like setting up a couple of recommendations for folks, and then I say give them a call and just talk to them, like interview all three, and then go with the person who feels like the best match for you, so that we don't immediately turn people off to that experience from, you know, something that didn't feel quite right.
0: You know, and I don't want to, I don't want to out any names here, but <laughs> Doctor P, we'll call him that. He he was that first guy that I went to see.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And his style was to sit there and stare at you until you talked. Oh, dear. <laughs> I'm like, I, right, dude, I you know, it wasn't my thing, right? It oh. just, it didn't work for me. And and what you mentioned there reminds me almost like trying to judge the entire institution of marriage off of that one girl when you were 13 in middle school.
2: Exactly. What a great metaphor.
0: And 13 year old girls in in middle school are very, very troublesome for 13 year old boys. Let me tell you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> they are. <laughs> they sure are. No, that's a beautiful metaphor for this experience. Yeah.
0: Not to suggest that thirteen-year-old boys don't have our own brand of stupid, you know. <laughs> for sure, and of troublesome. Yes. Yes. We uh, we have been considered troublesome at some point. I think.
1: Maybe. I think it was your fault. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But yeah, so, so I think it's just so very important because trauma is such a complex thing. And it's mm-hmm. not that we really haven't heard being talked about in the mainstream until the last the last few years. Right. And it's trauma didn't start a few years ago.
1: Oh gosh, it did not. It really didn't. You know, when we started fostering it, that trauma was not really even mentioned a whole lot in our classes. You know, mm-hmm. and so that's why it, it's wonderful to see now that it is being talked about it is being addressed and there's so many different places that you can find help and answers especially now with COVID I, I do really think that's one of the good things that has come out of COVID is everybody's having to learn to interact over the internet the zoom meetings and different telehealths and things like that there's so much more room for growth for the rural areas for people that aren't comfortable leaving their home, you know, or want to have some ability to be a little bit more anonymous. You know, yeah. I only see wonderful things coming out of this progressing, you know, getting people to be more trauma
0: informed. Yeah. Because where we live in a rural area, we're, we're about an hour outside of St. Louis and, and Dr. Tom is amazing. He works in a very affluent neighborhood in, um, in St. Louis mm-hmm. and, since he's in st louis amanda would never have gone there on her own
1: not by myself
0: absolutely not she's that's just she's not a city person she likes it out here a little bit more towards the country it's it's a little more peaceful fewer people all that good stuff but you know she mentioned that like we came into this in this whole foster thing without a whole lot of education on trauma Mm -hmm. and what we've come out of this to this point with is realizing oh yeah we had a lot of our own trauma. We like brought into that room and we kind of mixed it up with all the other trauma that was in the room. And, and asked
1: everybody to play fair.
2: It doesn't <laughs> work that way. No, it does not. Yeah, I think you're speaking about something really important. Um, and I think it applies to all kinds of parents, biological, foster, adaptive, kinship, um, is that we often bring a bag of hurts um, or or pain points or traumas. Um, and when we mix those in with those hurts and pain points and traumas of our children, if we don't have awareness of ours, right? I think a lot of times we're not able to, to show up um, as a parent that we want to. And I think that's where we go back to normalizing and celebrating, not just normalizing, but celebrating parents going out and seeking their own support, whether that's organic support, therapeutic support, 12-step support, whatever it looks like. Um, Cause I fundamentally believe like parents wake up every morning and want to do a good job. And there's a gazillion things that get in the way of that happening some days. Right. Um, But you know, we start with having the awareness of what are my triggers? What are my buttons? Are there ways for me to resolve those? Yes or no. And if yes, let's go, let's go work on that.
0: Yeah. Those trigger points. You know, I didn't, I didn't know I had those. (laughs) Her. <laughs> I had an idyllic childhood. I didn't have any any traumas through my childhood. Trust me, of course not. That's nobody what, did. <laughs> that's what everybody saw from the outside because my childhood was very normalized to me. And then mm-hmm. I talked to Amanda's after we got got together, and she's and we start talking about our childhoods. And you know, granted, she grew up in her own like weird world of traumas and struggles, and I grew up on the other side of it. And but we both had had our things that, that we had never worked through and didn't even at least I can say for me, didn't realize that they were, they were issues I needed to work through.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think too, it doesn't always have to be, you know, childhood traumas, but we can have really, I think a lot about relational trauma. So, um, and, and that can happen in adulthood. You know, if you think about a relationship with a friend or a significant other that, where there was a, a really big hurt, that often shapes the way we engage with our present relationship, whether it's a friendship or with a significant other. Um, and we, when we have so many of those that go unaddressed, we end up with all of these triggers. We don't know why they're from, but we know we get or where they're from, but we know we get set off really easily. And then we find ourselves over and over in these patterns of dysfunction and feeling um, disempowered to resolve them when I think that there are some beautiful solutions out in the world um, to help people heal and thrive and, and create new patterns of of function in relationships.
0: Now is that something that you guys provide? Uh as part of the services that you provide for do you do you work with the, the foster parents or biological parents as well? Or do you do you primarily work with the youth?
2: Oh, absolutely. So we work, um, we provide a lot of support to our foster families. So, you know, foster youth, number one, right? Um, but we understand that the mechanism for change, for healing, is often the parents that are supporting that child. And so we need to make sure that those parents feel supported. Now, we're not the ones, we're often not the ones doing therapy for that foster parent. We I think that foster parents deserve their own person, their own space um, for that. And so we work hard to, to make resource connections if those are needed or linkages, as well as help them build in that time to access that, that therapeutic support if it's needed. Um, but, you know, depending on, on the youth and the state, and I, again, I know I keep saying that, but it is very dependent on the community. Um, you know, we could be in a family's home a couple of times a week or Um, Once every other week, it just depends. Um, But then anytime we're working on reunification, which is obviously generally the number one goal. Of course, there's always those instances where it isn't. Um, And when we're allowed to, we also try to meaningfully partner with that biological family. And if it's appropriate, have that bio family and foster family start to build a relationship and allow the child to see this as and network of parents who are here to support you and encourage you and, and love on you um, so that when that child goes home, it doesn't feel like I'm choosing or uh, there's different rules here. Um, we want that to be a cohesive and supportive experience.
0: Yes, because that can be so very complicated. And, and I'll go back to the story of, of little Mr. A, who I'll be honest, we really thought that him and his sister were going to live with us forever because bio mom was just not good at being a human. Um, mm. I say that it's very judgmental sounding and it is. I'm certain she had some real mental health struggles and mm. it came out, it manifested in some really horrible behavior that really hurt her children. And it it was really hard not to be judgmental there. Yeah. And, and then you, you look at bio dad and you're like, well, who's he going to be? Well, as it turned out in the long run, that's where the kids ended up because, Dad would, dad did some stupid in the middle of all that. He had, they, they had a really complicated case and he did some stupid stuff, but then he realized, I don't know who told him what I'd love to be able to talk with him and figure mm-hmm. that out. But somewhere along the line, he, he flipped a switch. He went out, he got a job, he got promoted. He mm-hmm. got a new, his own place and got away from, from the, his family. That was, that was deeper involved in drugs than anybody should be. He got, mm-hmm. you know, some, some, some care services set up. He got. In that place where he was like ready to be a healthy dad. It was it was one of those amazing cases where we saw it was like, Holy cow, he's gonna go like, like actually raise his kids. Wow. And it was amazing to watch. And the only thing I will say bad about that is that the state the state doesn't always have great timing. And mm-hmm. the day that we took him, um, took them back to their father's house for the final reunification happened to be they chose the day to take him there on mother's day and i was like oh Oh. that's kind of cold you know because the little boy had suffered so much trauma at the hands of his mother and Mm. my wife treated him kindly they formed such a bond Mm -hmm. it was such a bond and it's so hard to see that that broken because i understand why he he really didn't want to keep a connection with us who wants your three-year-old child to be 10 or 13 and know that they were in foster care when they were little, right. They'll probably Mm -hmm. never know that story and that's fine. And, And I'm certain that's why they, you know, that, that happened the way it did, but, but man, that was a rough day to choose to do that.
2: Oh my gosh. I cannot imagine. I mean, it's already a really hard transition for a lot of different reasons, but then adding, you know, a day hallmarked with, with big emotions of love and attachment, that must have been so difficult.
0: Oh yeah. And they lived about an hour and a half away from us. And so we had that long car ride there and the long car ride home. And it was definitely a challenging situation for us to, to work through. But, but at the end of the day, the kids ended up where they were supposed to be. And it was one of the few real success stories we see what we've seen in in our experience, because so many times it doesn't turn out that way. You know, the kids we have seen have, have had parents who are in their own addiction struggles who just can't quite fight their way out of it.
2: Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's so sad for everyone. It's sad for, I think I'm sure you guys as foster parents, because I'm guessing you're, from what I can tell you root people on for sure. Um, It's obviously tragic for that, that biological parent. And then, you know, kids, kids want to be with their parents. You know, I'm sure you've seen this. I've seen it. A 100 times where as a child turns 18, and they exit the foster care system, they get straight back to their parents or their family. Because uh, we're we're hardwired to be with our people. You know, I once had a supervisor explain it really well to me when I was new to the field. She said, you know, I have a really dysfunctional mom, and I can talk about how dysfunctional my mom is. But as soon as someone else mentions it, I get really squirrely with them. Right. I, I, my claws go up. And I think that that's right. You know, we're, we're hardwired to be with our people, with our family, and um, we can be critics of them. Right. But as soon as someone else says they're not good enough, or they hurt you or whatever, we get defensive. Um, And so I think also honoring that as part of someone's uh, foster care experience is important that we, we really can't, um, we can't talk so poorly about the biological families of our kids because they can't often disconnect themselves from their families.
0: Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I have a um I have a cousin who's has her own addiction struggles. And a guy that I work with, his wife came came to work to pick him up one day or something. And turns out she had been childhood friends with my cousin and and she says to me something like, you know, Oh yeah, well, she's a real piece of work now, isn't she? She's really got falling off. And and my immediate instinct, like, I, you know, if you haven't seen a picture of me, cause this is audio, right? When I decide to be angry, I have a really good hate me face <laughs> <laughs> and I felt my hackles come up and I felt myself like, mm-hmm. like for a half a second, I think I want to reach out and just smack this gal. Like you can't talk about my family that way. Exactly. But the truth is, is like, she's, my cousin was in that place. Like she was mm-hmm. in a real rough, but she still is. You know, and addiction has been the source of that, but you can't, you just can't let somebody talk that way about your family without having those, mo- those moments of, of just anger and just, it doesn't even have to make sense. It, it never does. I don't think it doesn't make sense, but that's what comes up. And that's been a struggle with a lot of, a lot of kids because find something good to say about the parents. Well, mm-hmm. you can usually find something. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's a lot of work.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, or sometimes we can just ask our kids like what's good about it like tell me tell me tell me your best memory with mom or you know what's your favorite thing about your dad and then we let them let, we let them drive it right and then we support them in in establishing what what they value and what's important.
0: Yeah, that's finding the the good in people is is always difficult when you're in that moment if you're hardwired for for judgment.
2: Sure, exactly. Um,
0: I'm certain everyone else listening is not, but I was hardwired for judgment.
2: <laughs> I am certain that many of us were. Um, and again, like there's something behind that, right? It's not you, you came out of the womb, just a judgmental baby. Um, I, there's often a story behind that, that we can honor and understand. And then as we're ready, choose to make a uh, new connections
0: you know it took me a while to understand my story but mine is pretty clear
1: <laughs> <laughs> speaking of connections how do families connect how, how do they get your services
2: oh, that's a great question um so we um like i said our, our biggest line of service is therapeutic foster care and we and we know that there's a lot of kids in foster care who need that safe therapeutic level home um and so in all 7 of our states we have Um, what we call recruiters out in the community working to find those people willing to raise their hand to say, yes, you know, my home, my home is potentially a fit. Um, And so we, we would certainly encourage anyone that's listening to this, who's curious about foster care. You don't have to commit, but just curious with questions, um, to check out our website, which is www.staffy.org. Um, and just, you know, ask a question. Let us know what you're thinking or what your curiosity is. Or if you think you're a rule out, you say, oh, I'm a single parent, I can't do it. Just check it out with us. Because a lot of times um, we have plenty of single parents who are phenomenally successful foster parents. Um, and then for other services like family preservation, for example, it depends on the community. Um, in some of our communities, those referrals can come from schools or uh, Boys and Girls' Club. They can come from Medicaid, for example. Um, in other communities, they come from the county or another prevention-like service. Um, so if there's anyone listening that's curious, I just invite them to our website. Um, there's a lot of self-help there. And then, of course, they can always send us a message or give us a call, and we'd be glad to try and connect them with the service that's the best fit for them.
0: You know, and I just want to mention, you talked about the people who believe they're ruled out. Uh, we talked with Sarah Salisot here a while back. I can't remember exactly when that was. But one of the things that was really interesting that I didn't know this before we even booked the interview, but Sarah mentioned something about her wife and I went, Oh, okay. Well, this is, how mm-hmm. does this work? Right? It, because I mean, let's just be honest, depending on what part of the country you're in yeah. as to whether or not that's a big deal. We're in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. So that really depends on who you're talking to. Some people mm-hmm. are terribly okay. Some people are terribly un-okay with that, but uh, her and her wife actually their goal is to take care of teenage girls with trauma if I remember right Mm -hmm. and I look at that and I go whoa (laughs) I'm terrified of that (laughs) you guys are amazing you know
2: totally yeah I'm glad you brought that up Um, we celebrate same-sex couples um, becoming foster parents and I mean not only because we we believe that They deserve to be parents, absolutely. But also, there's a lot of kids who are experiencing foster care who do identify as LGBTQIA, right? And um, it would be really hard if we put a child who identifies as lesbian in a home, for example, that doesn't... doesn't create psychological safety for someone who identifies as lesbian, that'd be really hard and potentially damaging. So we do need, you know, parents um, that represent the values and culture and beliefs of the children in our care as well.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Because uh, I don't want to make light of this, but if you have a young girl who's been sexually abused by a, by a father figure, I'm probably, you know, the big Brown guy with a bald head and a long black beard. I'm probably not the best place for her to go. Cause that that psychological safety you mentioned, that's not going to be present there for her regardless of who I am. It's Mm -hmm. because of who she had in her life. And so finding those safe places like that are are so powerful.
2: Mm -hmm. And that's why we need, you know, as many people as possible to raise their hands to say, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be a foster parent because Um, you know, when you don't have a lot of foster parents, but foster parents, but you have a lot of need, you can't match as well as you'd like to, you know, we want to do the best possible job of matching a child based on their unique needs and culture and religion and beliefs with a family that um, can support that. Um, And when we don't have a lot of families to choose from, we accidentally truncate that process.
1: Well, yeah, we see it all too often. Kids aren't placed where they can thrive, they're placed where they will fit.
2: Mm,
1: And, and that's, that's not the greatest place. And then a lot of times there's not even a foster home. It's a group home or boys Mm -hmm. and girls town, you know, and, and that's not, that's not a home for our kids.
2: No, I mean, our outcomes, the outcomes very clearly demonstrate that, you know, children have the best outcomes when they're being raised in a family setting. You know, there's, there is occasionally the right place and time for a higher level of care, but that should be time limited um and as a mechanism for stability and safety and not as a as a long term way to grow up.
0: You know, Ryan, I have to ask this question. Like mm-hmm. our story. Mm-hmm. I know why we're we're in the middle of this. If, if anybody is curious, scroll all the way down to the bottom of the episodes and look at our origin story. Or if you go over to the website and you're watching, look on one of the um, the blog posts that have all the episodes listed in there. I think it's on the top left corner. Our origin story is what it's called. And that'll tell you why we're where we're at. I'm mm-hmm. just curious it, with with the training and the education you have. What drew you into this space because man, you didn't you didn't pick the easiest one I don't think.
2: <laughs> That's a I love that question. Um, so when I was a undergrad, I was a, a, a psychology undergrad. I'm just really fascinated by how people think in and, and interact um, and behave. and um, I was actually planning my my junior and senior year I was doing a lot of work um, in the research space and in labs because I wanted to, um, get a PhD in the uh, co- like cognitive neuroscience space. Um, and it was, I was working in a lot of labs where people would kind of, including myself, um, poke fun, like, you know, ingest, but poke fun at, at therapists or, or touchy feely people, right? Um, and so that was my life plan. And then um, I randomly got an email from a, a group that I was a part of saying, we need volunteers for a teen parent group. Um, and we need volunteers to bring food, to do education groups for the teen parents, and to provide child care. Um, and I was really curious about it. And I was curious about providing child care. So I went to an informational setting um, and or informational session. And at that session, I mean, I just felt myself come alive in a way that I had not yet in my life. It was kind of those like moments where you get goosebumps and realize there's something some reckoning happening inside that you can't really understand why it's there, but it is. Um, And I just fell in love with teen parents. I was just um, humbled by their resilience and their strength and their desire to do something different for their baby than they had experienced for themselves, for example, in some cases. Um, And so I started volunteering um, with them and I did an internship with them. And that's what brought me into this field. Um, I worked in the field for a couple of years after that, um, working a lot with um, adolescents who had aged out of the foster care system, as well as families who were in the child welfare system. And then I went back and got my master's degree. Um, but that's what led me here. And it's one of those things that um, perhaps you guys feel the same way. It feels right. It feels like it's you know part of who I am and what I'm meant to do. And that might look a lot of different ways. And there's ways there's days that, you know, I make mistakes and I fail, but um, it, it is what feels correct in my life. And so that's my story for, for being here.
0: For us, we were, we really just, as we stepped into the space of helping kids somewhere, it was, it felt like a calling for us. Yeah. As much as we, we felt, we thought, you know, we were going to adopt kids. Suddenly we looked at foster care and it didn't take, but what? about 37 and a half seconds until, <laughs> until we went no wait, we're supposed to go a different direction
2: yeah yeah. and those are those things that you can't really explain they just happen and and then you know like okay this is where I meant to be. yeah,
0: yeah. There, there's a greater power there somewhere that's te- that's telling mm-hmm. you that this is you think you know what you what you want but let me tell you there's something else set up for you. let's just go ahead yeah. and, and walk that road.
2: Absolutely. absolutely.
0: And I oftentimes tell people when when I'm standing there, my phone rings and I look at it, I say, oh, okay, there's two calls you do not ignore. One of them is from, from your wife and the other one is from God. So I've got to go. <laughs>
2: you, sir, you have something right going on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, those are the two that I make it a point not to ignore because, um, well, if my wife's calling, I probably really need to answer. But if God's calling, mm-hmm. he's probably not going to hang up on me. <laughs>
2: Yeah, he's probably going to keep calling.
0: <laughs> so did you have anything else to to ask Amanda? I don't think so. You always say, I don't think so. Why did you do that? Then no. <laughs> <laughs>
1: he's like, let me redo that then. Right. Let me be more clear.
0: <laughs> here, and I thought, clear. here and I thought I was going to just push <laughs> her into something. I know better. We've been together for, what, a little over 20 years now?
2: I was going to see if you got it right congratulations mm-hmm. that is that is hard work
0: well you know when you have a guy as as wonderful and charming and handsome as me it's a lot of work you're right
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: yeah she's she's used to me by now i don't i don't know that if she could train another guy quite to the level she's got me at, at no, this invested in in yeah,
2: it sounds like it can i ask you guys a question absolutely what would you say to someone who's thinking about raising their hand to be a foster parent? What would you want them to know?
0: You know, we actually, what in February, I think we held a webinar just on on kind of that topic, like what it takes to become a foster parent. But I think, I think some of the lessons we've learned have been most importantly, that everybody says almost the same thing to us. I could never do that. I could, I could never let them go. I couldn't let them go back to their parents. I wouldn't do it. I, I, you know, I, or, the other side of it is the guys who say, I, I could never love another person's child. Mm. And the truth about the whole situation is, is it hard? Hell yes. It's <laughs> hard. We, we've had some, really awesome. we're, we're in the middle of some real hard moments with some teens right now. Like it's, mm-hmm. the, the, there are buckets of tears involved here, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's hard. Yeah. But is it worth it? That's the real question. Mm -hmm. And some days it doesn't feel like it, but you you get to that point down the road where you look back and you go, oh, wow, okay. That was the difference. Like the little boy I've mentioned a couple times, little Mr. A. Letting him go, my gosh. I mean, even baby Carl. Carl was with us from from a few days after his birth for his first life. The happiest little baby you've ever Mm -hmm. met in your life. Well, besides maybe... Our little, our youngest, he, he's probably the second happiest child I've ever met in my life. When mm-hmm. my teenage son at the time would come home at 13, 14 years old, he would come home and he would say, Hey, I want to hold the baby. Now, who does that with a, at a, as, at 15 years old, right? 14 right, years old. Right. He was just a light in our life, but mm. he went home Yeah. and that was hard. Sure. That was incredibly hard, but is it worth it?
2: Change, That's a beautiful
0: answer. Yeah, the changes we we get to make in little kids' lives will last for generations, and we'll, it'll last in places where we won't be old enough to see it.
2: Yeah, you're right, and it, I think it is cliche, but if you sit with that thought for a second, it really does only take one adult or a family to change the trajectory of someone's life, right? And so, I think sometimes these problems, you know um racism, and poverty, and um, classism, and all of that stuff. They're so big, and they're so abstract, but it feels like there's nothing I could do to change that. But, you know, you guys are the living proof that it's just one couple, right? And, and their love and care and willingness to um, explore themselves and grow that can change the life um, of a person for generations to come. So I thank you for that. I thank you for that.
0: Well, I appreciate that. I'm, not, I'm going to steal a line from Josh Ship. If you're not familiar with him, he mm-hmm. um, he speaks a lot on foster care. He came through the system, and he says that mm-hmm. every child is one safe adult away from a success story. That's right. And it's that's exactly right. well. Thank you for sharing your time with us today, Ryan. We really do appreciate that.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. Um, can I have a? Can I do the states one more time so you can cut it in? Certainly. I just want to make sure I don't forget anybody. Certainly. Okay. Uh, I just pulled them up. Sometimes I forget. So it's our states, the staffy states are Alabama, Colorado, Indiana, Kentucky, Nevada, Ohio, and South Carolina.
0: All right. And I'll make sure that that ends up on the, uh, on the show notes as well.
2: Thank you. I really appreciate the time with you guys. It was a pleasure talking to you.
0: It was. Thank you. Okay. Foster Care Nation. Thank you for listening to Ryan's story. Now take her knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at fostercareuj at gmail.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com groups fostercareuj. Don't forget, we have a Patreon account where you can support our mission for as little as $5 a month. It's at patreon.com slash foster care nation the links to everything are in the show notes or on your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com and as always
1: you are so super awesome i thank you guys oh cool, cool, cool yeah yeah thank you for listening thanks thanks thanks